Well, welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. If you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn it to Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 49. The passage is also printed for you in your bulletin. And some of you will know from last week that the four weeks leading up to Christmas is known as the Advent season in the church calendar. Advent literally means arrival or coming. And it's a season that's characterized by God's people waiting and longing for the arrival of what we most desperately need. God coming to be with us. God coming to rescue us. God coming to do that which we could never do in repairing a relationship that we ruined. As we enter this Advent season at Trinity Grace, we're looking at the passages at passages from the prophet Isaiah specifically passages found in Isaiah uh, chapters 42 through 52 of his book. And in these 10 chapters, there are four instances, four instances where Isaiah speaks of a mysterious figure, one that he calls the servant of the Lord, that will come to accomplish what God's people could never accomplish on their own. And the four instances in the book of Isaiah have come to be known as the servant songs because of how they describe this servant of the Lord. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 42 and saw how the servant is meant to come to set all things right. How the servant comes to take the chaos of our lives and of this world and to replace it with justice and with right order. And it's important to remember as we begin this morning that Isaiah writes about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Yet, the mysterious figure that he describes in his servant songs, they give us a sketch of a person who looks exactly like Jesus, who we believe to be the servant that Isaiah describes in these passages some 750 years before he makes it onto the scene. In our passage this morning, we're going to be turning to the second servant song of Isaiah, and we see the servant come to fulfill a prophetic role. He comes to fulfill a prophetic role that we often fail to accomplish. The servant comes with an eye to the outsider. This morning, we're going to see in this passage that the servant is always looking to those who are not yet a part of the family. He's looking up and he's looking out. He's never looking inward. This morning, we see the servant is always focusing, always committed to love the entire world. That's good news for you and me this morning. It's even better news for our friends and our neighbors who don't yet know this servant, who aren't here this morning. And it's because we follow this servant that's constantly looking out and looking up that we're planting a church in this part of San Antonio because we want to follow him as he intends to reach the ends of the earth. To see what I mean by all this, you follow along as I read from Isaiah 49 beginning in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. 
Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Let me pray for us before we consider it this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it points us to our deepest need, Jesus. We pray this morning that as we look at Isaiah 49, that we would see him clearly. We would be encouraged by him that we would hear your truth spoken and that your truth would set us free. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if someone asked you the question, what does the world need most, how you would answer? If someone were to ask you, what would lead to the flourishing of most people, how would you respond? There's so many things that probably come to mind when you hear a question like that. If you took the question to Google, which we all know is the authoritative voice that ends all debates, you'd see people answer this question with responses like this. What does the world need? What would bring flourishing to this this place? Some people say peace. Others say common sense, freedom, knowledge, kindness. Some respond to the question with a bit of humor, saying things like the world needs more sleep or Batman, or the world needs love, sweet love. I wonder how you'd respond to the question, what does the world need most? What would lead to the flourishing of our world? There are things that immediately come to mind. Some of us might think the world needs better education. The world would be better if everyone had equal access to quality education. Some might say the world needs economic growth. After all, a rising tide brings up all ships, and we need more robust economy in order to make the world a better place. Others might say that the world needs certain political parties to craft laws and to implement policies. I wonder this morning how you'd answer the question if given a chance. At the end of the day, no matter what we come up with, no matter how we answer that question, I think we'd all agree that our questions, our answers to that question would be incomplete, in many ways ineffective. Most of the answers that we give to a question like that, they're not holistic enough to really make the world a better place, a place characterized by what the Bible calls shalom or universal flourishing. It's what God intends for us in this world to make all things right where we flourish in a way that we are created to flourish. It's an interesting question. What does the world most need? The Bible actually comes and it attempts to answer that question for us. And the answer it gives is that the world most needs God's people. The world most needs God's people. The mission of God in this world to bring goodness and flourishing to this world through his people really begins in Genesis chapter 12, where you see God set apart one man for a very special mission. 
God sets apart Abraham. He pulls him aside and God makes a promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. God promises to bless Abraham and to make his name great in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, why does God do this? Well, he does it so that Abraham and his family can move out as they receive God's blessing to be a blessing to the entire world. God says as much in Genesis 12. He says that all peoples on the earth will be blessed through Abraham and through his family. We see the headwaters of God's mission in the world in Genesis 12. And as you follow along in the Bible, you see that this one man, Abraham, he expands into a family. And then this family all of a sudden expands into a nation of hundreds and then hundreds of thousands of people. And this nation is meant to explode to the ends of the earth with the singular mission of bringing blessing to everyone that it touches. God's people are what the world most needs. When the world comes into contact with God's people, in a very real sense, they're meant to come into contact with God himself. God's people are meant to stay, stay closely connected to God himself, and the world is supposed to get a taste of God's love and his justice and his character through us as they rub shoulders with us. The world is wanting to hear the truth about God and God is going to use his people to bring that truth, to bring that blessing, to bring flourishing to this world. It's an exciting mission. It's what the world needs most. God's people accomplishing their mission of bringing blessing. And as the church, we've been given the same task that God's people have had throughout history to be those who are blessed by God and then move out and take that blessing to all people. The church, which is God's new people now, are meant to give God to the world. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations and they really failed in that mission that they were given. And you and I as the church are now inheriting that mission. In fact, in the New Testament, anytime you see Israel, you can normally replace the word church for it, and it would make sense. But if we look at our lives, and we look at the church as an institution, we would have to admit that we'd failed in what the world needs most. We'd failed to give the world what it needs. Most days, it's all we can do to care for ourselves, let alone other people. I mean, more often than not, if you're honest, you don't feel very blessed. We don't personally feel like we're flourishing ourselves. And how can we bring to others that which we don't even feel that we have ourselves? When we think about accomplishing our mission of bringing blessing to the world as God's people, there's lots of things internally that we battle against, that work against our mission for this world. We're often fearful when we think about speaking of God to other people, scared that people will think that we're crazy, wondering if we've got the right words to say in the moment in which we're called to say them. We often don't feel competent for the task. After all, look at all of our personal failures. I mean, who are we to tell others about God? Sometimes we're not even sure we believe if what we're saying, uh, sometimes we're not even sure we believe in what we're saying if we're honest. Our hearts are oftentimes full of unbelief. 
In many ways, our hearts are bent and it's really hard to embrace our mission. When we think about accomplishing our mission of bringing uh, blessing as God's people to this world, there's also lots of things externally that we battle against, that work against us. We think of societal structures that seek to silence the message of who God is. We think of friends and neighbors who just don't want to hear what we have to say. We experience tough going where it seems like we're not making any difference at all in this world. And much like God's people in Isaiah, you and I have stalled out, stalled out on our prophetic mission to bring blessing to the world through our words and through our presence. Remember when Isaiah wrote to God's people, they find themselves in captivity. They're subject to Babylon. They're supposed to be the ones bringing blessing to the entire world, yet here they are in slavery. Instead of influencing others in beautiful ways, they're being corrupted and influenced by the nations who don't know God, by the nations that they're supposed to bring blessing to. And like God's people throughout history, we often find ourselves stalled out when it comes to revealing God's goodness and truth to our friends and neighbors, to the world. So, what does God do with our failure? Does God give up on his mission to bless the world through us? Does God decide to wipe us out and start over with a new people? Surely he could find better people than us to carry out this mission in this world. Does God shame us into action? Kind of looking at us and tapping his foot, asking us why we can't seem to get our act together and get on board with this mission that he's given us? No. We see what God does in our passage this morning. What he does is he sends his servant to do what we failed to do. To bring blessing to the world. To reveal God's goodness and truth to the ends of the earth. As we pick up in our passage, we see that it's actually God's servant who is speaking in these verses. And he begins verse 1 by grabbing our attention. He says, listen to me. Listen to me. The servant wants an audience. And not just any audience, he wants a wide audience. He's calling beyond just God's people that Isaiah is writing to. He wants the attentions of the coastlands and of the peoples from afar. He's picking up on the mission that he's been given to bless the entire world. And he's beginning to speak to the entire world. And we see in verse 3 that God says to the servant, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. We see here that God gives his servant the name Israel. And this is significant. It's significant because that had always been the name that God used to refer to God's people throughout the Bible. And what we see is that the servant comes And he actually takes the name of God's people. He takes their identity in order to accomplish what they failed to accomplish. In verse 3, we see that the servant, the servant that Isaiah speaks of, is the true Israel. The one who lives up to the family name. The one who accomplishes the mission of God's people for them. The mission of making God's goodness and truth known everywhere. And it's interesting here that On one hand, the servant identifies with God's people. 
Yet on the other hand, he is completely different from God's people. And truth be told, that's exactly what we need. We need somebody who is like us, who can come and identify with us, who can live up to the name that we've been given. But we need also someone who's different from us. Someone who can come and pull us up out of the mess that we have made. Someone who's able to do and accomplish the mission that we could not. And we see how this servant is like us, yet unlike us, in three specific ways in this passage. First, we see from the end of verse 1 that the servant is called. The servant says in verse 1, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Like us, the servant has been called to a mission, yet unlike us, he was called to this mission from his very birth. From the time he was born, he was a man for others. He was born with a very specific mission in mind to do what Israel failed to do, to bring blessing to the entire world. Second, we see from verse 2 that the servant is gifted. Not just called, he's gifted for his mission. Verse 2 says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He made me like a polished arrow. Like us, the servant is gifted, yet unlike us, he's perfectly gifted to accomplish his mission. The servant's word, it says, is like a sharp, sharp sword. His, his prophetic voice is his weapon. Truth is his instrument. He comes in order to make God's truth known through powerful words. And his words, unlike our words, always accomplish their purpose. They never fall flat. They always land exactly where they need to land in someone's heart. And we see that the servant is a polished arrow, meaning that it flies straight and it hits its target every time, unlike us who sometimes miss, who sometimes fail, who sometimes don't operate according to what we should be doing. And last, we see in verse 4 that the servant is always faithful. In verse 4, the servant says, I've labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and and my recompense with my God. And this really highlights what ministry looks like in a fallen world. This is a refreshingly realistic verse for us here in Isaiah 49. Because as you look at the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that he often felt abandoned. You see that he often felt alone, that he was constantly up against opposition in his life. He faced rejection and unbelief and misunderstanding. Yet despite this heartbreak that he experienced, we see that the servant always remains hopeful. He doesn't give up. He doesn't give in to cynicism. He's always trusting that God is at work even in the midst of failure. What we see is that the servant speaking in these verses comes to take our role, to fulfill our role. He comes to identify with us as God's people, taking our name upon himself. And we see that he completes the mission given to God's people, the mission of bringing blessing to the entire world. So we see through this servant that God doesn't just give up on us. He doesn't wipe us out. He doesn't shame us into action. He sends his servant to be with us, to identify with us, to accomplish what we failed to accomplish. And now, because of the servant's work, we can be invited back into our prophetic mission. 
We get to be invited back in by God to our original mission of bringing blessing to the entire world. And because of our servant who comes to identify with us, but also do what we never could, we get to move out with the pressure off. The pressure is now off because we know it doesn't all depend on us anymore. Because we don't offer ourselves. We get the chance to move out and offer someone else. This servant, our servant, Jesus, who comes to bring blessing in a way we never could. And because of our servant, not only is the pressure off, the desire to move out into our mission is actually increased. Look at how the servant comes and he explodes God's expectations for God's people. Remember, God's people would have thought at the time that if the servant just came to bring them back, that would have been enough. But the servant's mission is so much bigger. Look at verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In other words, reconciliation for just God's people is not enough. It's about bringing in those who are not yet God's people. The servant is encouraging us to think bigger. And I think he's encouraging us even now in our current context and in our current culture. The servant is not just here to draw Christians to himself. He is a light to the nations. And in this passage, that would mean those who don't yet identify as God's people. And this is so important for us to grasp, especially as we try to plant a new church here in Northwest San Antonio. We want to follow this servant as he reaches the ends of the earth. And another way to put it is that we want to be here for people who are not yet in the room. That's what Jesus was all about. That's what this servant was all about. His eyes were always up, always looking out. He would not have been satisfied with simply collecting Israel back to himself, simply collecting Jacob back to himself. He had eyes set on something far grander, something far bigger. Reconciliation for us, sure, but not just us. For those that you have not yet heard as well. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, is what the world needs. And he is coming to be a light to the nations, to proclaim salvation to the ends of the earth. And Isaiah is reminding us to look up and to look out. The mission of flourishing and blessing and salvation, it's going to go worldwide. And there are nooks and crannies, even in our own lives, in this part of the city, that we need to be reaching, that we need to be bringing light into dark places. And we are living proof that God's servant means what he says. Because if you stop and think about it, I've mentioned this before, we are the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, when he talks about the ends of the earth, he is thinking in a lot of ways about us. We're a completely different continent that God's people would not even have known about when Isaiah wrote these words really hard for us as Americans to get our minds around because I oftentimes think that I'm the center of the universe. But we are the coastlands, the people that are far off. We are the recipients of God's worldwide mission of blessing and salvation. The fact that you're sitting here this morning in San Antonio, Texas, 
probably some 5,000 miles away from the ancient Near East, is a living testimony to God's goodness and his commitment to see his mission reach to the ends of the earth. We are the nations that Isaiah is speaking of here in verse 6. And since we've been the recipients of God's mission of blessing, since we've been blessed unbelievably by Jesus, this servant, we're now called to move out and be participants of God's mission to bless, to move out and bring blessing to others. We're invited into God's mission of blessing the entire world, and it's an exciting calling. It's the mission we've been given as we plant this new church for San Antonio. We found salvation through our servant Jesus, and now we get the chance to join him in his mission of reaching even further into the ends of the earth. The servant that Isaiah speaks of in this passage is too big and he's too great and he's too glorious just for us. He is the light that this dark world needs. Our friends and our neighbors need this servant this Christmas. It's what's propelled us to plant this new church. It's hopefully what compels us to love our friends and our neighbors on a daily basis, that Jesus is too great and too glorious and too big for just us. We want others to hear about him. We want others to know his love. We want others to receive his blessing. And the good news that we get to share is that he has come not just for us, but also our friends and our neighbors. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you have come in order to bring blessing, for the way that you have come in order to reconcile us to God, for the way that you have come to give us the flourishing that we desperately need. Lord Jesus, we have been recipients of that love in our own lives, and we pray that as we come to understand your love and your grace towards us more deeply, that you would make us those that move out in order to pour that blessing out upon our friends and our neighbors to share the truth about who you are, to share the truth about your goodness, your glory, and your love. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us open ears and open hearts as we engage in this mission that you've called your people to. We thank you for calling us and pray that you would bless us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.